Hello, just a quick bit before this week's episode to let you know that we have a Patreon you can subscribe to if you like what we're doing here and you want more of it. You probably already knew that. We don't stop going on about it. What you didn't know is that you can currently get a little free trial so you know exactly what you'd get as part of your subscription. You can head to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in the show notes to get your first seven days free. All you need to do is pick which tier you'd like a free trial of. The Biggest Mates tier is the one that has all the extras in it. And then for seven days, you are free to listen to any episode we've released in the last six months. You can cancel any time or just leave the subscription rolling if you like what you find. It's charged monthly. And during any month, as part of that Biggest Mates tier, you'll get ad-free episodes of this show every Monday. You'll get a brand new episode of our new Manic Street Preacher show every month. Two episodes every month of The Ultimate Playlist, our themed playlist show, where we talk about all kinds of different music, different artists, different genres, different eras, and one or two bonus episodes every month, depending on the length of the month. That's two episodes every week. There's also other tiers to trial. One that is just the Manic Show and ad-free What Is Music episodes, and another that is just ad-free What Is Music episodes. But hey, if the first seven days are free, why not try a bit of everything? Plus, all tiers include access to the exclusive subscriber-only Discord where we discuss the shows, the bands we've covered, various music topics, and loads of other stuff, including some games that the friendly community have devised themselves. So head on over to our Patreon page now to claim your free seven-day trial. Go to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in our show notes. See you there. Hello, welcome to What Is Music, a music podcast about music. We are a podcast that focuses on discographies in their entirety, doing deep dives on one artist at a time. And you join us during season four, which is called Is It Rad In Your Head? A critical analysis of the history, cultural impact of music of Radiohead. We're going through their entire career, album by album, track by track, asking questions like, does context matter when you're listening to music? Does knowing the history of an artist affect your appreciation of their output? And this season, we're of course asking, is it rad in your head? And to be clear, we're asking, is it rad in your head in regards to the band Radiohead, not is it rad in your head to this, the fourth season of our podcast, which is called Is It Rad in Your Head, and which is now in your head. I am Adam Scott Glasspool, and I'm the only one here uh, this week. There's no Steve or Lucas, uh, because I sat down with the producer of Pablo Honey, well, one of the two producers of Pablo Honey, Paul Q. Caldery. And we had a really nice chat. Um, he joined us from America uh, over Zoom. And we talked about, you know, how he got into the music industry. We talked about how he got hooked up with Radiohead. We talked about how they made Pablo Honey. We talked, obviously, for a long time about the song Creep. Uh, and we talked about how it came to be that him and his producing partner, Sean Slade came to mix the Benz, which of course we are currently on our podcast between Pablo Honey and the Benz. So this is just a really nice interview. We cover loads of stuff. Um, it gets a bit technical because he's a music producer and I'm into that kind of stuff as well. So we start talking about specific kind of boards that are used for mixing and things like that. But I think it's a fun chat. Um, there were some, you know, despite being a music producer and me being a podcaster, uh, there were some slight issues with the audio, <laughs> funnily enough. So for some of the bits, I've had to take uh, little bits and sections from, from, from the Zoom recording. So the audio quality will come and go a little bit, but honestly, it's not that much to worry about. So uh, here's the interview. I'll see you on the other side. You have uh, an enormously impressive um, career, and it's it's a long career. And there's loads of stuff in your back catalogue that's really interesting. There's obviously Pixies and Warren Zevon and Throwing Muses. And of course, Radiohead. We are a Radiohead podcast, so we're probably going to focus on that. But before that, yeah. I want to know like how you got into the music industry. And before that, I'd like to know how you got into music to begin with. But before that, to boil it down even <laughs> further, I would like to ask you, what is music? What is music? A very wide open question. Um, well, I'd say technically it's, you know, um, sounds made by people in a, you know, organized in rhythm and with some rhythmic sort of 
basis and then there's a harmonic you know um, depending on you know you, the the earliest music would have just been people singing and chanting and drumming you know and uh, as we develop musical instruments that produce tones you know it's it's a means of human expression just like visual art and uh, dance and you know it's it's one of the arts. I love that answer. It falls perfectly between uh, mine and some of my co-host answers. That's at once very technical and very emotional. What what kind of um, yeah. what kind of music were you into at a very young age? What set you out on your path? Well, I started playing music in high junior high school, and the music that we liked was sort of the that was in the seventies. I'm I'm sixty three, almost sixty four. So. In, the, in high school, that was the early 70s. So, you know, Aerosmith, uh, Deep Purple, um, you know, Uriah Heep, all the, all the early 70s sort of progressive metal. I, I, I didn't like Genesis that much. I liked, I liked things with, I liked guitar. I've always liked guitars, you know? I like playing them, I like the way they look, I like the way they sound, especially when they're really loud and distorted. So. Anything that had loud, distorted guitars was a favorite. Um, there's a, a Humble Pie record, a live record called Rockin' the Fillmore. It's a two-record set, classic, double live, you know. And the guitar playing on that, it's actually Peter Frampton and Steve Marriott and Greg Ridley and Jerry Shirley. And they are just kicking ass. Like, the tones are killer. And Marriott's a great singer, and it's, it, it's exciting, you know. So what I was into was the excitement of loud guitar, you know, uh, Richie Blackmore's solo on Highway Star, you know, the, um, you know, Train Kept a Rolling by Aerosmith, you know, I, I liked, I like loud guitar, and I still do. Yeah. Um, it's not as in fashion as it was back then, but... It's uh, not, it's kind of fading away, right? Really loud guitar music. No, it goes up and down. I mean, it depends on, if you're a teenage boy, you could be into death metal, and it could be, you know, there's, I mean, there's... There's different genres, obviously. Things are more fragmented now. There was a moment in the early 70s when rock was the complete cultural be-all and end-all touchstone, you know. Mm. Um, uh, every, the rock stars were the biggest, you know, deal. And there were some, there were some uh, not probably, not unrelatedly, there were some great movies made in those years too, like Chinatown and all those, you know, Butch Cassidy and all those early those early 70s movies where things were kind of freewheeling at the studios too so you know everybody was making a lot of money there was a lot of money flying around and records were selling big and kids concerts were selling out and you know i remember when alice cooper came to i grew up in minneapolis when alice cooper came to town boy that was a big deal oh yeah Yeesh. yikes <laughs> so and you know same thing alice cooper loud guitar yeah, I mean, you, you, you said that you were, like, uh, struck by, like, just the tone of those guitars and stuff. Is Because I know you you did perform, like, uh, at one point. You've been in bands and, and stuff oh, yeah. like that over the years. Yeah, I was, in, I was in bands in high school. Was it the hunt of that tone that led you to focus more on, like, the producing sort of side of it? or? Well, when we first got into the music in high school and we were just kids, it, you know, the first thing you do is play, learn, you know, learn the songs and play them, you know, and... You got to learn yeah. the language. You got to teach yourself the language of how to get how to get a tone and and what it's like to play a gig and you know just stuff like that to to understand. You got to speak the language. And so I had no ulterior motive to become a producer. Um, I played in bands up until about 1983, and then I realized that first of all, it's not that easy to make it in a rock band, and if you do, right, you're kind of like a slave. So. I began to realize that if, if that was a game that if you win it, it's easy to lose. <laughs> so, um, and I realized there was this other job that where you could make records and uh, make all kinds of records with different bands. You don't have to be in the same band all the time, you know? Um, you know, I saw a video this morning of Jackson Brown. He's, you know, he's in his 70s now, I think, and, uh, or at least late 60s. And, you know, he's playing... Um, What's the freaking song he wrote um, these days, you know? And uh, it's the song he wrote when he was 17. You know, he still, he still has to play it. I mean, he, it's a good song. It's not a, a, you know, it's not a drag to play it. But at the same time, you know, 
I mean, that's something that Radiohead certainly struggled with. You know, they didn't want to have to play Creep every night for the rest of their lives, you know? Right, yeah, exactly. So I got into producing because I just enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's a way, it was a way to do more than just play. I liked playing, but, you know, I liked recording. I liked shaping the sounds. I liked getting it done, hearing it on the radio. Um, you know, so we, we had some success with our own, some local success in Boston with our own records that we made ourselves. And that kind of was another step in learning how to do it, you know. And when did you start kind of partnering up with, uh, with, with Sean Slade? Well, we were in a band together in the early 80s. Um, we went to Yale together in the late 70s. He, he and I were classmates at Yale till about 79. He graduated early. I graduated in 79. Then we kind of reconvened up in Boston and we started a band up there that evolved into the band that was pretty, pretty popular locally. We made our own 12-inch singles, you know, recorded them, pressed them up. And so he and I were, um, you know, living in the same house together and we were all, you know, pretty close. So it kind of made sense for us to work together just because um, we liked the idea of a team and, and sp spreading the load and just if we were going to go places and you know, we ended up going all over the world and recording, and it's more fun to do it with your friend, you know? I mean, yeah, that's true. Was, was that unusual at the time, to have kind of a, a, a production team rather than a, a single producer? Well, the thing is, I mean, it's always kind of de facto. If, if somebody's a professional producer, they're going to have an engineer that they work with almost all the time if they can. And it, so it's a team. It's always a team. It's just a matter of if we, we build ourselves as equals, you know? Uh, it wasn't like one guy was the engineer. And that was kind of, that was maybe a little bit different just because we could both engineer, we could both produce, we both were musicians, we could both do arrangements, you know. So it was just, you know, two heads are better than one. And we saw eye, eye to eye about aesthetics. So we didn't have to argue a lot about that. Um, I think it was attractive to bands. I mean, Courtney flat out said, I, I picked you guys. One of the reasons I picked you guys was that I got two guys for the price of one, <laughs> which is kind of true, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, it's just a good business decision at that point yeah <laughs> yeah well once we started having some success it, it wasn't it wasn't really based on yeah value, oh yeah sure <laughs> you know <laughs> um my understanding is that like at the beginning of the 90s you were kind of uh rather than coming to the uk specifically to produce radiohead you were kind of in the uk anyway what what prompted the move to the uk we had established our studio fort apache in Cambridge, Mass, in Boston, Mass. Yeah. And we were, we were ruling the local scene and um, started to make records for national bands. And we had done Freak Scene by Dinosaur Jr. Freak Scene was, you know, kind of a, made, a, made a bigger splash in England than it did in America, you know, in terms of cons being considered an important record. I mean, in, in America at the time, which was, whatever, 1988, seven? Um, or no, maybe a little later, 1990. Um, in America, you know, if you didn't sell big, they, it wasn't important, you know. But in England, they would consider a record important if they thought it was good aesthetically or important aesthetically. And if it sold or not, it didn't really matter, you know. In fact, if it sold, a record that sold a lot was a little bit suspect, you know. Like, well, well. Oh, yeah, we have, little, a, we have a deep suspicion of success in the UK. A little too yeah. appealing there. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and Jay just was the perfect... You know, that song is just the perfect slacker anthem, you know. Um, and it just, you know, it, we, Sean and I realized that if we went over to England, we could get meetings with people based on the success of that song, you know. And um, so we were just be, being really aggressive as producers, you know. We had, um, you know, the, the, way that we, the way that I got to work on the Pixies was that Gary Smith and I, which is Gary, Gary was another guy who was a partner at Fort Apache, he loved. He saw them live at the Rat in Boston, and he said, "I've seen the next big thing." And we went to their next gig, and we just said, "Look, we record bands. You should come to our studio." Um, and they were like, "Okay." <laughs> and we did a test session, and it went well. And then, you know, uh, then we did uh, the Purple Tape, um, and we went after them. You know, we didn't just wait for them to figure out that that maybe we were a good place to record. We we went right up to them and said, "We want to record you." And so we did that. In England, too, we just figured, you know, you got to be aggressive. <laughs> and there weren't as many people doing it back then. You know, we had our own studio and we had a lot of, we had resources, you know, and 
And uh, everyone didn't have a studio back then. I mean, you had to have a two-inch tape recorder and a big console and a bunch of microphones from Germany. And, you know, it, it wasn't like everyone had a, a Pro Tools in their bedroom, you know. So, um, you know, we, we got meetings. And one of the meetings that we got um, was with uh, Nick Gatfield at EMI. And his, one of his guys, Keith Wozencroft, had signed Radiohead. And they had tried a sort of a quick EP produced by the managers. You know, it was okay. It's actually, in retrospect, pretty good. But in, at the time, it wasn't what they were looking for, you know. And so they were looking for producers who had worked with loud guitars. And, you know, as he said to us, if you, we have this band, they have three guitar players, and we're having trouble kind of making it happen, you know. And uh, he had a record on his desk that we had done. And he said, you did this, right? And we said, yeah. And he said, all right, I'd like to, like to see if you'd want to give it, these guys a try, you know. And it's funny, when he played us a couple songs. This is Nick Gatfield again. He played us a couple songs, and they weren't really guitar-heavy at all. They were demos, and it was, it was all Tom's voice, you know. And that's what I heard first, you know. I mean, Radiohead are, 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 were kind of a guitar band, but really it's, it's his voice that is what sets them apart, you know, Johnny's guitar and his voice. That, that's the thing that, like, stood out for you on those, on those first demos? Oh, sure. You know, we do a lot of indie rock. You don't hear a voice like that very often you know no um, I mean no, Tom was a choir boy he was trained as a choir boy so you know he had some chops and then he had a point of view too you know so I mean we were very much dedicated to the idea that rock uh, you know could be intelligent could be not stupid you know it doesn't have to be about pink socks um, but it can be there's nothing wrong with that you it know? can be yeah sure yeah I love all kinds but we were, we, were, we were dedicated to the idea that, you know, you could write, you know, be- deeper songs than that. I'm not talking about, you know, concept albums about the Iliad, you know, but just, you know, look at what Radiohead do. They don't, Somewhere in between. Yeah, they don't write about typical romantic things or, you know, pop things. Pop is dead, they wrote, is what they wrote, <laughs> you know? Yes, yes, they did. For better or for worse, that song, I reckon. <laughs> so uh, we were psyched. I mean, this is the kind of band we were looking for, you know. So, I mean, it, it, it was obviously a pretty dicey situation being with the major label at a time when you really needed to be on, like, Creation or, you know, One Little Indian or something like that to be cool. Yeah. Smartly enough, I mean, Radiohead had really good managers, and they understood that the way for them to be different was to be on a label. And, the, and to get, you know, to get some backing. I mean, you know, EMI put substantial money into Radiohead from the word go yes so, yes they so, did uh, I've, I've heard that this is not a uh, pablo honey not a cheap record to make in any way no and and it wasn't it wasn't for us being extravagant i mean no one they never mentioned money to us the the, the label the managers nobody ever said a thing they never said you have a budget of this much or you can't spend that um and we didn't we weren't we weren't bringing in fancy stuff or anything we were working at some relatively expensive studios and there was some pre-production and we flew on we didn't we flew coach to england you know it wasn't like you know they weren't treating us like uh you know like pink floyd or anything royalty um, yeah <laughs> but uh, but ultimately you know um it probably did cost you know several hundred thousand pounds to do and uh wow. long since recouped <laughs> yes yes i imagine so yeah but that's the thing like you know you it, it was. They were certainly. They backed them more than more than creation. You know, creation famously went bankrupt trying to pay for my bloody Valentine's Loveless. So, well, I was going to say Pablo Honey was relatively cheap compared to the Benz, where they they started over several times, and uh, they were at very expensive studios like the Manor, um, you know, which is two two three thousand pounds a day. You know, working with working in very sort of expensive situations. So. And then, you know, ultimately they hired us to mix it after the whole thing was done. And so that added money to the project. So, you know, um, but ultimately, you know, at that time, in that environment, the record company was right to know that they needed to spend that money and they needed to chase it until it was done. And, uh, you know, the first record we got by on, on having the one big hit single. The second record was a whole other thing. And, you know, I didn't produce that record, but the potential there was... 10 times as much, you know. And then when you get to OK Computer, it was like 100 times as much. I mean, yeah, the, the, the levels that they, they go through in like the first sort of five years of their career are 
are insane. Well, that was it. I mean, we, when we were doing, when we were recording Pablo Honey, we went to a gig at the Jericho Tavern. But they had, they, they had a gig at the Jericho Tavern in Oxford and Supergrass, who were called the Jennifers then, were opening up. Okay. And there were about eight people in the audience and me and Slade were two of them, you know? Like, it was just nobody. And then, you know, <laughs> by the end of our association on that record, they were playing London to several hundred people. And then they came over to Boston when the Benz was just coming out, when the Creep was riding high and the Benz was almost done. And they played a big club over there to several thousand people. And then the next time they came back and played the Worcester Centrum, which is 18,000 people. And then one of the last times on, on, in that progression was uh, they played, a, uh, they came when um, Kid A, I think Amnesiac was out, and they were playing a giant outdoor gig to over 100,000 people, you know. And I remember standing on the stage with Ed, just like, man, every single gig that I've seen you has been like exponentially more than the last one, you know. It's just, I've never seen that with any other group. Um, I've never been part of it. Um, it was just kind of amazing. And, you know, I think that they, you know, they made some good choices. They got lucky. They were in the right place at the right time. You know, and they were talented. Yeah, that, that, that trajectory sort of starts with, and like we've got to talk about it, Paul, Paul it, it starts with kind of creep. I mean... Like as as the story kind of goes, is is you guys were hired to do like a couple of tracks, and then creep was kind of something that they had lying around, uh, and then the work that you all did on it together is what kind of prompted the collaboration on the whole album, and I think creep is such like a legendary song, and it has all these stories and these myths that surround it, as it should. Yeah. It's a shame, I think, to dispel any of those myths or correct any of them, I think. But what are like your overriding memories of Creep from that time? You know, this is an example of sort of the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, you know. By the time we got over there, we, Sean and I had been in the trenches for several years, five years maybe, you know, as independent, yeah. uh, you know, producer engineers. And we dealt with a lot of situations, you know, drunken drummers, you know, people, bands having fights, you know, just every, every, you know, you learn to solve problems. And, and so they brought us over there and they assigned us, EMI assigned us two songs that frankly weren't very good. You know, they weren't very good songs. They've never really come out. I think maybe they're, you could probably find them online somewhere. Can you remember what they are? Um, one was called Inside of My Head. And what, what the hell was that? Okay, that's a B-side. Yeah, that came out as a B-side in the end. Yeah, in the end. But, uh, um, I just, you know, I just didn't think that it was world-beating material, you know what I mean? It just wasn't, you know, this, this wasn't going to do it. We, you know, we needed, we needed a nuclear bomb. And um, so they, it wasn't, Creep wasn't an old song, it was a new song. They had written it relatively recently, I think. I think maybe Tom had, or Tom had written it a while ago and the band had worked it up. But we were at their practice space and, we, were, we worked on those other two songs for a while, and then I was getting kind of like, oh boy. And uh, I said, well, what else do you have? Because <laughs> that's what you do, you know? You always ask, like, what's new? And they played that, <laughs> and we thought it was a cover because he, Tom said, that's our Scott Walker song. Uh, but he, he, he mumbled into the mic, and so both Sean and I thought he said, that's a Scott Walker song. And so at, after we were leaving the rehearsal, Sean and I, he, Sean turned to me and said, too bad the best song's a cover. And, and I said, yeah, what's the deal with that, you know? Savage. So we, we were still under the impression that it was a cover. And um, when we were at the studio some days later, and we were working on those other two songs, and things weren't, things were kind of bogging down, you know, things weren't going that well. You know, we, I was just trying to figure out something to get the, get the vibe back a little bit or something, you know, like get some excitement happening at the session. And so I said, hey, play that. Scott Walker song you played the other day. And uh, so they played it. They only played it once. And after it was done, there was a little, their, their friends who were in there, there was a few friends in the studio and everyone sort of applauded. And there was sort of a moment of silence, like, what was that? Boy, that was crazy. And uh, so then I said, okay, lunch. <laughs> you guys go to lunch. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I worked on editing it and stuff while they were at lunch. And then when they came back and played it, you know, and I said, you know, I. I think this song's really good. I think we should work on this song, too. And they didn't care, you know. Um, 
I mean, I think they liked that song better too, you know? Um, I don't really know why the label thought that we should do these two songs that weren't very good, other than that they just didn't want to, they wanted to see what we could do with them or something, you know? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. Um, and we ended up, like I said, we, didn't, we did end up finishing them, but it just wasn't the focus. So that, that afternoon, later, after work, around 5 o'clock, I called Keith Wolzencroft in London, and I said, uh, we have another song. I know that we're only supposed to do two because they were paying us by the track, you know? So it's kind of like me calling up and saying, hey, how about you guys pay us for another track? Uh, he said, well, I'll come down. I'll, I'll drive out there after work. So he drove out and got there about 7.30 at night or something. It takes about, you know, Oxford from London at rush hour. At that point, we had the, the structure. We had the bass part, some of the guitars. I don't know if we had much of a vocal yet. Maybe we did. Um, but it was enough to play him. And so we played him the song. And he said, play it again. And we played it again. And he goes, well, it's not a single, but you can finish it. Go ahead and finish it. That's, that's cool. So I said, okay, well, respectfully, I think it is a single, but we'll, uh, we'll get to that later. <laughs> and uh, so he went home, and, uh, and we continued to work on it. But at, 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 once we got over that hurdle and got it sort of accepted to be finished, then after that, it was just a matter of doing it. Um, you know, it wasn't, a dif- it wasn't a difficult song to record. The noise thing was already there. Like, when they played it in the rehearsal space, Johnny did it. Um, and so it was, some, it was something that apparently he had done spontaneously at a, when they rehearsed it or when they worked up the arrangement of it for whatever reason. You know, he thought he should kick, it, it, it should kick off, you know, and get loud. But um, he didn't just think of it in the studio. It was, it was literally like one of the last things we did. And we said, okay, we got to do the noise now. And we set up the noise. And the first one you hear is the first one he did. And then it took us like 20 wow. tries to do the next one. It's like, nowadays I would have just sampled the first one, you know, and moved it. But, yeah, yeah. Um, which is good. So you couldn't do that stuff back then, you know. And he, uh, Johnny played some piano. He played piano in the whole song. But when we mixed it, I made a mistake and I left the piano out until the end. And then I said, I'm, I'm, we're mixing and I'm thinking like, oh, shit, I forgot the piano. And then I was like, no, it goes in here. And I just put it up right at the right time. And it was one of those examples where, I made a mistake, but it was a better than if I had left it in the whole time. It didn't need to be in the whole time. It needed to be at the end there where there's a chorus and there's like an empty chorus that doesn't get loud, you know, and it gets all queen at the end there. So um, I think it's significant that they only played it once. It was only one take, you know, first yeah. take. That's it. It was just an example of when you're in the studio and you're just bogged down and everything is sucking. And, you know, I know what I was thinking, but I'm sure the band was sitting there thinking like, oh my God, this is a disaster. Like, what are we going to do? This sucks, you know? And then I gave them an out and they jumped on it, you know? They just played it hard, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, um, the rest is history. But it's it, 30 years later, it's currently being streamed an average of 600,000 times a day on Spotify. So That's, and, yeah, I, I read somewhere it's the highest, it's like the most streamed song of 1992. Yeah, that makes sense. Were you surprised that it was as big a hit as it was? Yeah, sure. We'd never have had anything that big before. I had no basis to think that it would go that nuts. And, and to me, like, it's, it's not just that it was a hit at the time. It's like 30 years later, it's still doing that much business, you know? Like, as a lot of people have said, it's, it's kind of aged well. Like, it's, it makes sense. It makes more, almost as much sense now, more sense now than it did then or something. And... Uh, I don't know, it's just been used in so many, you know, it's been used in commercials and ripped off for commercials and movies and TV shows all the time, you know. Um, it just seems to be one of those things that just is evocative to people. And, um, you know, that's what you're always trying to do. It's trying to make something that becomes part of people's lives, you know. Yeah. You know, was I surprised? Uh, sure, but, you know, once again... The, the, the major label machine, once they realized it, I mean, they released it and it kind of fizzled at like number 99 or something, got to like, it made the right, top 100. Right, they had to re-release it, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, then the guy in Israel locked himself in the, in the control room and played it 25 times in a row until they battered down the door and dragged him out. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, there was, there's always something like that where somebody just like goes, no, this is the one. And uh, yeah, and so then they re-released it, re-released it, and it did well. And so, but um, 
you know, we did the song and left, and we had to come back. And when we did the song, it still said, you're so fucking special. And so we literally had to get on a plane and come back and record your, the word very. <laughs> and, and then I had to swipe it in, you know, like move the faders. Literally, it wasn't even a, you know, nowadays you could just edit it in Pro Tools. But back then we had to, I literally had to go, you're so very, like move the fader, switch faders for the word very, you know. That's a so. skill. That's like a whole other level of performance on the song. You know, you, you That's switch the thing. It between it's a, the two uh, words. It, yeah. A lot of the art of making records has changed a lot. I'm not going to say that it's worse or better. You can do things now that you couldn't do then. But back then, you really had to throw your whole being into it. You had to, you know, when you were doing that mix, you had to just be like on it, man. And uh, I think that helps. I think that helped. Um, plus, tape sounds good, and uh, distorted guitars sound better on tape um, because they, they get rounded off, kind of. That must be why uh, why Steve Albini still uses tape, right? Yeah, because his the the sounds that he trades in are so harsh that if yeah, he yeah exactly in a good way. I mean, I'm not saying that they're bad; they're just harsh. And so, if you're going to do that, the sound you'll get on analog tape is so much cooler than the sound you're going to get on digital. There must have been kind of like all kinds of conversations about um, tone and, and sound and approach. And, and did any of those change when, when the job kind of progressed from a couple of songs to a whole album's worth of material? You know what? There really wasn't that much discussion. Um, you'd think so. Really? And they're, they're smart boys and they think about what they do. But at the time, especially, I mean, they were... They were so green as a band that really they, they didn't come into it um, saying like, well, here's what we want. I mean, we talked about some bands that they liked, you know, Pixies, obviously, and Miracle yeah, Legion, course. which was a local New England, well, you know, kind of a R.E.M. type band. And R.E.M., yes, yeah, we talked about them. P.J. Harvey, you know. Like, we talked about bands they liked or artists they liked and records who, that they liked the sound of. But in terms of, at, at that point, I mean, they hadn't really worked with very many producers that they didn't know, you know? So, you know, we had done Dinosaur and Pixies and stuff, and they just basically said, well, we're going to trust these guys that, that they know what they're doing. So, you know, in terms of sounds, I mean, I, I, you know, we just got the sounds that we got, you know, and, and nobody said those sounds are terrible or those sounds suck, we have to do better or something like that. Um, and that's kind of the way we, we always made records. Like we didn't spend too much time on the sounds. Producers spend too much time on the sounds. Um, oh, really? You know, um, you need to make the right choice quickly. And if it's not right, you back up quickly and go around and do it again. But you don't, you know, at the time, especially in England, there was sort of a, a method of producing that involved long, long days listening to kick drums, you know, bring in three more kick yeah. drums. Oh, no, I don't like any of those. Bring in three more kick drums, you know, <laughs> and hours go by, and then you maybe you get to the snare drum tomorrow, you know, and then it's like, <laughs> oh, God, 12 different snare drums. Let's hear the other one again. What about this, Mike? You know, you can go up your ass for weeks like that. And so it's not exciting, <laughs> you know? You know, let's make some music. Let's make some, let's do something exciting. And even when Johnny did the noise, the only thing, the thing I did right was to put the amp in the drum room. They had a stone drum room at the studio. And I put the amp in there and backed the mic off so it got a really, you, you felt it go big all of a sudden, you know? So I made the right choice, but I made it quickly. We didn't spend five minutes setting up for that sound. And people, so I've been asked, how do you get that sound? So many times, I got it the way you get it when you're in the middle of a record. I grabbed the mic off the kick drum, I put it up in front of the, amp in the drum room and he just did it the sound came from him you know wow so there wasn't a lot of concern we were it was a good studio they had good equipment um it wasn't hard to get sounds there it was it was easy enough we brought i remember sean brought his uh telefunken u47 microphone from america um, that we had been using on vocals and that's you know that's like having a really good camera or something it's, it gives you a better sound you know, then I'm not, I'm not sure if they had the same thing at the studio, but, um, you know, uh, we, we as producers and engineers, we never subscribe to the 
school that you need to spend a lot of time getting amazing sounds. Um, it really, it doesn't matter that much. It really doesn't, you know. Um, it, it helps, it, better to spend more time getting amazing songs, <laughs> you know, and an amazing vocal. That's the thing, like those are the things you need. Like you don't, you know, good sounds are great. If you can get good sounds, good, but you, it's better off to get it something that works quickly and move, 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 get it moving, get people rolling, get it, get, make, make the, the band feel like you're going somewhere, you're, or, or to be fair, you're getting somewhere, you know? Like, whoa, this is happening, you know? And then it starts to roll, it starts to gather on itself, and people start to go, yes, this is happening, you know? And, uh, and it's, not it's not a technical exercise. It's about capturing a, a, a spirit, right? Or like a moment, kind of. Yeah, like if you were doing a photo shoot, and the, the cameraman's like, wait, hold on, I have to set up the camera. And it takes like, it's like, you know, the thing people talk about in movies that you get to act for 20 minutes and then you have to go sit in your trailer for two and a half hours while they set up another scene, you know? Right, it's like right. That's, it's difficult to recapture. You don't really get yeah. going on it. That's, you know. So yeah. we, we always tried, we, we always had to work quickly. We learned to work quickly because we, we would, you know, at Fort Apache, you know, the, it would, it would be 6 p.m. and the doorbell would ring and the band would be there with their gear and you had to load in, set up, get basics, do the overdubs, do the vocals, mix it and be out the door at 2 or 3 a.m. with a finished product. You know, we, we did that night after night after night. And so that gets you to the point where you're not like, how are we going to get done? It's like, well, I know how to get done, you know. And that's, that was, it, it was a really fortuitous choice for us to get Radiohead to work with and for them, I think, to get uh, people like us who were not going to fire the drummer, you know. Like back in that, in that era of English uh, producers, it was very common to use a session drummer. Really? Oh, yeah. Sure. There's a, there's a band that we covered on, on this podcast called Manic Street Preachers, and for their first album, which was released around the same time, they replaced the drummer with a drum machine. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that wasn't going to happen, but um, we were just not the kind of guys who, we would never do that, you know. Like it never, it never really occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, you were saying that they were kind of green uh, in in the studio. Was that something that was that you had to manage or rein in or anything like that? Well, I mean, it was their first record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did that did that make it difficult at all? Or? No, because that's what that was our job is to tell them what to do. Right. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> and we we didn't have any lack of confidence, so you know it was it was easy enough for them to just go along with it. I mean, I think Tom regretted later. John realized that he could have shaped it more if he had been a little bit more aggressive about it. But, um, you know, that's only because he learned, you know, you, you got to get to the point where you understand the process. Right. Um, so I know they had recorded um, the uh, Chris Hufford, one of the managers, had a studio called Courtyard in Oxford. And I know they had recorded there, but I think it was probably pretty quick. You know, they didn't. I mean, we had a couple of weeks to make Pablo Honey, so. You know, that's that was the first really, you know, long term experience that they had making a record. So, um, you know, it only makes sense that they were, you know, we were trying to have some fun and learn, learn the process and go through it all and and come up, you know, come up with something good at the end. So it was funny because at the very end, the last day of the record, Tom came in with a bunch of demos and it was uh, the Benz high and dry um a couple more and i was literally like what where did these come from like how, you know where where were these songs you know <laughs> when we started when we made this record and he's like well you know they're kind of new so I, I i remember i left i left that session realizing like well their next record is going to be better you know right and uh, how did that make you feel you just don't know what someone's capable of you know we yeah. we worked with the best songs that we could out of the universe that we could had to choose from, you know, and uh, we even found one obviously that wasn't even supposed to be done, and um, so you know it's a, you, know, you always just want to get the best material you can get. So, and at the time I didn't I didn't think well I don't know who's going to make their next record or whatever. I just remember thinking like, well those new songs are good, you know. <laughs> so Pablo Honey, like for, with, with the distance that we have kind of it, it, it occurs as kind of like a bit of an outlier in in their discography um were there aspects or sort of glimpses of the future radiohead in 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 that first those first recording sessions uh sure yeah i mean uh 
<clears throat> Tom's vocals, um, you know, uh, Johnny being a multi-instrumentalist, he played viola and um, piano and um, guitar and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so, I mean, musically, sure. Um, you know, <clears throat> in terms of recording creativity, I mean, I think they weren't, even with the budget we had, we didn't have enough time to really get way out on it. We did some fun stuff, like for anyone can play guitar, we had literally everyone that we could find played a guitar, played a track. You know, um, the cook in the kitchen, uh, the janitor, everybody came and played. You know, so we had some fun with stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I think, I think, I think we probably, I hope that we instilled in them, uh, you know, that recording can be fun and it doesn't have to be an uh, unpleasant slog. And, you know, should, and the more fun you have, the better record it'll be, you know. Um, and uh, so I, I think so. You know, obviously what they, I, I had no idea they would turn into the more experimental band that they turned into, at, you know, from Kid A on, you know. Um, but yeah. that makes sense, you know. I mean, uh, interestingly, they were, you know, some bands burst onto the scene and their first record is their best record. You know, um, these guys burst onto the scene and they were so, it was so early on in their career that their third record was their best record. Um, so, I mean, or, you know, in terms of, I don't know what you call it, what, what's the best, but... Um, of the first three, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, you know, some bands just yeah. go downhill from record one. You know, doesn't never works again. I think I think it was always clear to me, especially like I said, that, you know, you could see that um, the experience of making the record had led Tom to finish some songs that were obviously going to be a leap forward. You know, so when people, you can see they have the ability to do that. Um, you know, I assume that that's going to keep happening. You know, I hope so, unless they have. A drug problem or something. Right, yeah. right, sure. <laughs> well, some people I mean, sabotage themselves, you know. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, that happens a lot in, in, in music. In God, general. yes. I, I, that, that's why I said it's only with knowing who uh, Radiohead are now yeah. that Pablo Honey seems out of step with the rest of their career. But it was also out of step with, like you said earlier, like with, with a lot of the, the stuff that British bands were doing at the time. And <clears> right. we didn't have the distance on it. How... How how did you feel once you like? How did you feel about the album once you had finished it? It took a while to finish because we got we, we finished up recording and then we did a set of mixes. We went to another studio in the south of England, south of London, and we did a set of mixes that were not great. What wasn't really happening? Right. And we 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 had already mixed Creep though that was done, and off to the to the BBC really almost before the record was started before the rest of the record started. So that was done. Um, and we were trying to, trying to finish it, you know. And so I went to the Bryce and Chris, the managers, and said, look, let's not spend any more money here at the studio where things aren't happening. Let's go, uh, let us go home and take the record back to Fort Apache and mix it there. And so for the most part, except for Creep, uh, and the things that were taken from, um, that the manager mixed, um, most of that record was mixed back in Boston at our home base. And so once we got back there, we were able to get it into shape. But even then, um, I don't know if I'd want to remix that record now, but I know I could do a better job now. I didn't have the tools quite, you know, to do it right, knowing what I know now. But of course, that's not fair. <laughs> what would you do to it? The biggest thing about mixing is, honestly, it sounds almost too simple, but you need to use a Neve board. Um, a, if you have one of those big classic Neve boards that's well maintained, nothing touches it. It's like a Ferrari or something, you know. Um, okay, I'm writing that down for something to get in my little flat. I will write that. Down. I'll find one of those. Lying well, they somewhere, I'm they sure. cost money. <laughs> Fortunately, I have one here. If you look behind me, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can see that. Oh my god! Right yes, there. there it is. Um, yeah, it's nothing else makes as much difference as that. Um, and I just didn't have one for, for, for the, for the, we didn't, we weren't at the right studio, you know, um, to mix it. And now that I, knowing what I know now, you know, um, just, if you just approach it the same way, but you have better equipment, when you, if you have truly professional equipment, it makes a big difference. And, uh, when we got to mixing 
the Benz, we, Ford Apache had um, upgraded to a Neve board that was suitable for such a, a job, and uh, that's why it sounds a lot better. So, you know, I'm glad that we were able to, that we were able to help finish that record, um, you know, which they, they had t trouble finishing that record too, you know, they were trying to mix it, and it was, the mixing was going on and on, and they weren't liking it, and so, you know. Right. They ended up coming back to us to do it mostly because of Creep, obviously, because we had, see, I mixed that one in England at the studio where we cut it. And that was a, that was the best studio that we used on that record. And that's why it sounds good like that. So, so how, how, how did it come better. about that you ended up like mixing the bends? And um, there's all sorts of stories about that being kind of a, uh, an, a kind of back channel communication kind of thing. Just, was it just simply the length of the, uh, that the mixes were taking? Well, I, I I don't know for sure, honestly. I'll tell you what my understanding is from what people have told me, but it's kind of piecemeal. I mean, and I don't, I don't know if I'm the ultimate authority, but you know, it took them a long time to record that record. They, some songs were done three times, you know, from scratch, and uh, different studios, yep. and um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them, obviously. To you know, they had a million selling first record, so everyone would like two to five million now, please. You know, and uh, <laughs> um, oh, please, thank you. <laughs> they, Lecky started mixing it, or somebody started mixing it, and it, uh, literally was going on and on like six days, which is crazy. Like, that's uh, to me that was unheard of. I'd never heard of anyone even doing that. And you know, they're on an SSL, which is not a good sounding board in my opinion, and they're trying to get it to happen, and it just it just wasn't happening. And they took a break. And they went up, up to Leeds and they did an in-store there. Um, and since, you know, at the time, they didn't, that was, Pablo Honey was their only record, you know. And so, uh, you know, I don't know if they played in, I think they played the in-store, but they also played Pablo Honey. They must have played Creep over the sound system or something, you know. And they kind of looked at each other and said, well, you know, what about those guys? Like, at least they know what Radiohead's supposed to sound like. At least they know, you know, we got it. They had a hit with us, you know. And so the managers were like, yeah, why not? You know, it's doesn't hurt to try because obviously they were throwing a, I mean you know if you're in a studio at 2500 pounds a day for six days mixing a song and it's not happening that, that's ex, that's it pretty expensive up. they had copies made of the masters and and my understanding is they did not tell lecky uh and he found out eventually of course and was not happy um i mean he didn't know us and he referred he, ref, he referred to us as the americans and, you know, sure, like, I would be mad if I was him, too. You know, he worked with the Beatles. So, um, <laughs> you know, um, they send us these copies. And, you, you know, you asked me about um, my, my top ten Radiohead songs or whatever, and I don't know if that's relevant, but I will say that um, one of the songs that I was going to mention was um, they, they sent us, the first song they sent us was Bones. So they sent us a copy of Bones, or maybe a reel with a couple songs on it, and Bones was one of them, I can't remember. But, uh, but we put it up at our studio, which by now was equipped with a Neve board, and, uh, and we put it up and we listened to it, and we were like, geez, you know, this is easy. Like it's, I remember thinking, like, wow, this is easy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, doubled of course vocals, it's like the Pixies, you know, and, and it just really came together and it sounded great. And uh, we sent it back to them, and supposedly the uh, uh, Chris and Bryce listened to it in their office and started jumping up and down, going, "We're saved." <laughs> so I don't know if that actually happened, but um, <laughs> basically, we were. It helped in much the same way as when we went home the first time. It helps to not have the band be there because they're just constantly trying to think of new ideas, more ideas. Like when you're mixing, you're editing the film. You know, you're. You, you, you've got what you've shot and you need to put into the best coherent narrative possible. But if you're constantly saying, you know what, let's shoot that scene again. Let's shoot another scene. Or let's, let's splice in this thing that doesn't even come from somewhere else, you know? And like, when, you, when they want to do that, it really slows things down and, and it, it makes it difficult to finish. You, you know? mentioned like the step up from, from Pablo Honey to the Benz and you heard it even in the demos. What, what is going on on the bends then that like wasn't going on, on on Pablo Honey do you think well um I think that Johnny really came into his own as a guitar player I mean the guitar playing on the bends is spectacular and um 
he just kind of decided that that's what he wanted to do, you know? Like, when he, when, when we were doing Pablo Honey, I, I think he was 16 or 17. Um, he, you know, he didn't have a voice. He didn't, even though he had done a lot with music and studied music and been in uh, orchestras and played viola, and he, he had a good grasp of theory and stuff, but he just didn't have, quite have a voice yet, you know? Um, and so, you know, you end up using things like the, the noise and creep because that's a, you know, that was a, a step on him, on the way to him finding a voice, you know? What is my voice on the instrument? And so, um, and also as a musical director too, because he, I think Johnny, especially on the bands, I think that he would have had a lot to do with how those songs were structured and, 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 and arranged. Um, so you just don't have that at the, not everyone has that at the start, especially when you're a teenager, you know? Um, you just can't expect, you, you, you can't expect someone to have that. And if they do, they're probably going to burn out, you know? So he, when, when, he, when, when, the, when they made Pablo Honey, that was exactly where they needed to be, you know, um, in terms of developing as a band to have a sound. You know, they, were, they, were, they, had, their, they had original ideas uh, and also some very derivative ones, you know. And so they had to try to take the, you know, like every band does, take the derivative stuff and the original stuff and merge it together into something that was, um, that had their own voice. And now that's the difference, you know. Pablo Honey is an album that is clearly influenced by other artists, and the Benz is the first step in them becoming a band that would go on to influence other people, you know. How, how, how do you feel about Pablo Honey now, with this much distance from it? I like it. <laughs> do I wish I could, I, if I could go back, would I change things? Yeah, but you can't. You know, um, I think that we were, I think we did a good job, and I think we made a good record, and it sold millions. And I think that it, we came up with a song that is, you know, by far, I mean, I mean, Creep has been streamed on Spotify 900 million times. Um, and the closest yeah. thing to it is, you know, something from, from uh, OK Computers, maybe 300 million. So that song is, is currently, you know, being streamed. Creep is streamed more times than the most streamed song by the Beatles, which is Here Comes the Sun, by really? the way. Interesting fact. I mean, it, it it touched a nerve, didn't it? Creep. It definitely filtered through into like the the. the well, I gotta believe that culture. a lot of the people who like the Beatles don't don't stream as much or something. And you, you hit a certain sweet spot, you know. And to be fair, yeah, that's Ed Sheeran yeah. puts out a song and it gets two billion streams in uh, two months, you know. So, you know. Right. Creep, yeah. Creep's gonna hit a billion in, at the end of this year, and we're gonna have a party. You're all invited. Amazing. But but that's what I mean. Like, do do I? I mean, that, that song is probably, it's probably my legacy as a producer, probably the first thing, you know, that's on my resume, you know, so how do I feel about it? It's a huge part of my life. It's a big part of my career. It, it opens so many doors for us and for them, I think. And uh, yeah, uh, there's nothing really negative about that record other than it was made by a young band who were, who hadn't really found their own voice yet. But um, luckily... They had a hit off it. It, just, it wasn't one of those records that just comes and goes and, and no one really cares, you know? It was a record that... Right. I think people are going to give you your first one if you have a worldwide hit on it, and even if every song on it isn't a hit, you know? So I think that was okay, especially when they followed it up with a better one, you know? The music biz right now is kind of like all or nothing. You got your TikTok moment, you know? Now's when you're hot. Now's your little dance video's hot. So get out there and go, go, go. Don't waste any time. You know, it's like you, <laughs> and it's not better or worse. It's just different, right? It's just different. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the what what's your reaction to the idea that most or a lot a big portion of Radiohead fans, if they're trying to get someone into Radiohead, would say, start at the Benz. Pablo Honey gets kind of left behind a little bit. Like, what? What's your reaction to that kind of I mean, vibe? Nobody said it was their best record, and if someone's saying what's the best record to start with, I wouldn't. I wouldn't start with it either. It's just yeah. it's the record they started with, but that's that's not relevant, you know. I mean, uh, I think that in a lot of ways it's more tuneful and rock songy than some of their later stuff, which people might have a hard time if they if you start with you know 
a moon-shaped pool or something, you know, how do you, you don't really understand the band as much, you know? So I think Pablo Honey is relevant. If you get into the band, you're going to get into it and find things you like on it. But, you know, I don't see, I don't, like, it doesn't bother me that it's not their best record. I, I'm glad it's not their best record in some ways, you know? Like, it's, right, okay. <laughs> you know, because like I said, if, if your first record is your best record, then you have not really succeeded as an artist, in my opinion, you know? Your first record should be good, and your second record should be better, and your third record should be better than that, you know? And then you should decide what you, where you want to go from there and do it, and they've done that exactly. That's the Radiohead blueprint, yeah, exactly. It is. Um, I, it, it's, it seems like a weird question, because I think most people who work in the music industry are probably aware of a band called Radiohead. Um, but d- did you keep up with them and their career and everything, and follow? are you still following them around today, you know? Well, we're not... Um, we don't hang out, but... Um, sure, sure. I mean, it's, God, I haven't even been to England in at least 10 years. But uh, <clears throat> when they come to American tour, we always generally go see them, you know, and, and usually we'd be in Boston or maybe if we were somewhere else, like we'd go see them in Los Angeles or something. Um, you know, we still enjoy hanging out and Tom and I have a chance to catch up sometimes. You know, he usually ask me, like, how's Kristen Hirsch doing or something like that, somebody else that we know in common. Um, you know, we're still friendly, but I probably was closest to Ed in terms of, you know, Ed, Ed came to America a lot and would drop in at the studio and drop by to say hi. Or um, Colin came over to Massachusetts when we lived there some years ago. You know, we'd kind of see him when they'd come by, come by to tour. Um, and I, I certainly followed their career, and not assiduously. You know, I'm not nearly as familiar with some of the later um, records. But, you know, I listen. When this stuff comes out, I listen. You know, and uh, I think what they're doing is great. You know, I don't have any... It's not meant to be the same kind of music, you know? Um, and yeah, so, sure. You know, uh, it, it's, 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 it's art. It's closer to art than it is to rock and roll, obviously. So, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't describe Kid A as a rock and roll record, right? <laughs> and it, well, and, and like I said, at the start of this podcast, you know, I like loud guitar. That's what I like. <laughs> I like exciting yeah, music with yeah, loud guitar yeah. and drums and so they're not really doing that for me um these days but that doesn't mean anything you know um it's it's more important that they are doing things that they want to do at this point 30 plus years on you know otherwise why would they be doing it you know and you, you know everyone's doing their own thing i mean obviously johnny's turned into the one of the most successful film score people tom's scoring films you know um ed made a big solo record with a lot of brazilian musicians and stuff i mean you know everybody's doing what they want to do and doing cool stuff and you know like i said i I think they they remain a kind of a model for what you can do with the with the rock band going from start to finish and so pablo honey is the first piece in that puzzle it's kind of like the rocket taking off but you know um the the whole arc of the journey is still going you know so yeah absolutely absolutely like i mean with with that in mind the, the whole arc of the journey did you manage to put together a top 10 or was it just way too difficult well no i was going to say like some important songs to me like that song bones was very important because we, i didn't know what was going to happen with the bends and uh and we just got that song it was like getting a fat pitch over the plate and just smacking it out and watching it go into the stands and you're like well, we nailed that one and then you know it turned into the whole <laughs> It was an important step on the whole journey, you know, because we, and that's why the managers were excited because they realized the record was going to get done now. That's important. Right. Yes. The the end was in sight. You know, you can't be like the Laws or something where they, it took them, you know, or, or my bloody Valentine where it took them years, years and years and years to finish a record, you know, Mm. like you got to give it up and get done and go out and tour it. You know, what what are some of the other uh, important songs for you? Uh, well, Creep, and, you know, we've discussed that. Obviously Creep, <laughs> um, yeah, There was a song <laughs> on Pablo Honey called Vegetable, where I kind of had a... Tom yeah. and I were up late one night trying to get the vocal, and he was getting pretty frustrated, but we, we kind of had a breakthrough where he kind of realized how to get some of the results he wanted. And uh, um, we ended up kind of... <clears throat> sorry, we ended up the night on kind of a, 
I wouldn't call it a fight, but we were kind of like, you know, uh, it was a little contentious. And, uh, Some words then, were uh, exchanged. He was just frustrated. And, uh, and then we came back uh, the next day and listened to it, and he's like, ah, oh, it's my best vocal that I've done so far, you know? And I said, yeah, I think it is, you know? So that was an important one uh, in terms of moving forward. Um, and the, the other one would, would have been the song, The Bend, because, like I said, I was familiar with, I was familiar with the song from even the end of Pablo Honey. And then when we got the, the, the track of it, um, I remembered the demo vocal that I had heard. I only heard it once. But um, when we got the track of it to mix, I called up the managers and I said, I don't think this vocal is good enough. And it just wasn't very good. It wasn't as good as the other vocals on the record. And... And apparently there'd been some, he'd had some trouble singing it. And uh, so they said, yeah, we know, we know. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you, <laughs> you know, we got to fix it. And I was kind of putting my producer hat back on a little bit, you know, because obviously it just, I was just saying what I, I was being honest, you know. And um, so they said, we do, came up with the plan that we would mix the track without a, the vocal, or with, but with the background vocals, kind of like a, you know, what we used to call a TV mix. And uh, mm. so that's what we did. We sent them a mix that was the, the, the track and the background vocals, but no lead vocal. And then Tom went in and sang over that, and they put it, that back on a, to a two-inch tape and sent it back to us. And the mix that you hear is, the, is our mix of the track plus Tom's new vocal blended together again. So, like, Oh, wow. That track went through a lot of changes, <laughs> but um, I think it came out good. It's the title track, obviously, and and uh, it was a it, that was an example of where I felt like I made a difference. Sim- similarly, on Creep, where the original lyrics had some lines that were not very good, and um, when I sat down with Tom, I said, "You know, these two lines don't do it for me," and he got mad and said, "Well, there's it's done. It's done. The song that's an old song. I can't change it," and I said. Of course you can. You know, don't be ridiculous. You got to make it better. And so he kind of went like, and he went away. But he came back half an hour later with the lines that are in the song that are much better. I won't say which lines they are. But um, it, was oh, okay. much, it was much <laughs> oh, better. And, uh, and, I'm glad, and he was glad he did it, and I'm glad I made him do it. But that was, you know, th- those were the songs where I felt like, well, <clears throat> the things that we did as producers... Made a, made a difference. We weren't just recording them. We were really trying to say, like, no, no, that's not good enough, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, not to say that Lecky didn't do that. Lecky, I'm sure, was, worked them hard, you know? And, and um, it was so amazing mixing those songs. You know, you're so close to it. I remember um, I, we had done, like, six or seven of the mixes, and um, I had a cassette, because that's what you had back then. I had a cassette in my car, and I was playing it with some people in the car, and the people in the car started freaking out. They're like, this is amazing. And I said, well, really? Is it? You know, because I, I just was like, I don't know. You know, I'm just doing this. And I had no context, really. But uh, I started realizing, like, hmm, maybe it is kind of good. <laughs> and, uh, it's always kind of good if you don't, if you just do it and you don't think about it too much, you know. Like, I'm, 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 you know, when we were mixing that record, it wasn't like, oh, my God, we're mixing the record of the 90s. You know, um, in fact, some of the mixes were done during time periods where we actually had, we were in the middle of other records and we, Sean and I had to come in at like eight in the morning and do a mix from eight to noon and then do the other band from noon on. So lots of times, especially some of the remixes, like some of those songs on, on the bands were mixed four or five, six, seven times, you know, um, they'd say like, it's almost there, you know, this part's not quite right. You know, we do that part again and edit it in or something. So a lot of that stuff got done, you know, in the early morning hours um, before a di- another session. Like we were, we it wasn't that we didn't take it seriously. We just that's the only time we had to we had control of the studio in those in that time frame. So we had to, you know, the mixes were all charted and we had to set them up. You know, it takes about half an hour to set it up, you know, and then go from there where we were. So um, that was a record where you know we we were in a really good state of mind because we were busy and we were preoccupied and yet we would be able to focus on it for a little bit, you know, and like make it better and then send it off. And it was a long process because 
we had to um, literally send a DAT over to England so they could hear the mixes. So it would take days to get feedback. In the meantime, we'd do something else, you know. So, but it was. I remember. I mean, when we did Pablo Honey, we were just doing that. And but when we did the bends, it was really offhand. It was like we were squeezing it in, and so we didn't think too much about it. And that's. It's so important, you know. To, in, it's, the more you the more you think about art, um, the more it changes. I'm not going to say it's better or worse, but it changes it. That's good advice, man. There you go. That was my chat with Paul Q. Coldry, who was such a, a, a dude. <laughs> like it was just a really nice chat. I've had to edit some stuff out because it was originally a bit longer than that. But um, it was it was a really nice, fun uh, chat, and I, I hope you all enjoyed it. We're at the end. Uh, of another episode so thank you very much for listening um next week we're going to move on to the bends uh and some of you some of our listeners will be going ah finally so yes next week tune in uh for the bends but before that come and uh talk to us about this episode come and tell us what you think of the bends uh you can find us on twitter at what is music pod instagram at what is music pod tiktok at what is music and if you want to send in something a little bit longer we can read it out on the show email us what is music pod at gmail.com uh, and there's also a couple of ways that you can support us other than listening if you would like to you can come and buy our merchandise if you go to what is music you'll find all of the designs that we have up there including some radiohead specific stuff and stuff from previous seasons and stuff that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense but that's fine uh, and if you just want to chuck us a few quid without buying any of our merchandise you can go to coffee.com which is ko-fi.com slash what is music uh, that goes towards our running costs very grateful for everybody who's donated over there uh, it's been pretty amazing uh, that about does it for this episode though we'll see you next week thank you again for listening uh, don't leave me high don't leave me bye bye